and for those who will be with us in this service, and for those who are listening to these services outside these walls, maybe online or by other means, uh, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church in Broomfield, Colorado. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message, continuing uh, the thoughts we had last time about right perspectives, having the right perspectives concerning the Bible and righteousness. And that Uh, is found in Matthew chapter number 5. You'll be able to follow along with us there as we continue our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at this wonderful message from Jesus here as he began his earthly ministry. And in Matthew chapter number 5, I would like to begin reading in verse number 10. Follow along if you would when you found your place in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house." Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, as we approach your word, we do so with humility. And as we've already sang about your redemption this morning, the only way that we have any, anywhere with to stand before you is through what you did for us on Calvary. We do not come in our own strength, Lord. We come through your vicarious Uh, imparting of your strength and grace. And Lord, I ask that upon your word would be poured out an anointing of your spirit and unction. Lord, we've worshipped you in spirit. We've worshipped you in truth. We've given you glory, Lord, and we've set our affections on things above. And now we look to your word to guide our steps here below on our pilgrimage. And Lord, I pray that you will take your word magnify it above all your name that we have so wondrously sang about this morning together. Magnify your word. Hide me behind Jesus. And I'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. As Jesus 
continues teaching his disciples. He had a magnificent uh, opening to his sermon here, if you want to look at it that way, as a sermon on the mount. And he really got their attention and he got our attention with these blessed uh, beatitudes, these attitudes of blessedness that we ought to carry with us as disciples of Christ. And we understand this is by no, we, by no means showing us the way to heaven. Uh, we do not get to heaven by keeping the Beatitudes. Uh, that would be to make the same mistake as trying to get to heaven by keeping the law or keeping works. And it just doesn't work out that way. Uh, many are deceived that think that it will. That they can do enough good to blot out the black and the bad in their life. But the scriptures are clear. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. And so we don't come in our own righteousness. We come through the righteousness that is imparted, imputed to us by Jesus Christ and His righteous life. And in His strength we stand. This is where we find the help of the Holy Spirit to to be enabled to keep these Beatitudes to the best that we can. And we fall, yes, but we arise again and we say, I'm going to be like Jesus more so tomorrow if He gives me grace to live it than I was today. And and we learn from our past and and we continue to walk on. And God helps us and He looks down on us and He says, there's somebody, there's, there's one who's trying to be like my son. And He gives us grace upon grace. And then the culmination of what will happen if we live this introductory beatitude sermon is that we are going to eventually make it difficult for others to be around us. They're not going to want to stay in the light. I'm not willing to give up the light so that I can go wallow with them in darkness, by the way, just to make that clear. I'm going to continue to invite them to the light. And every time I need to, I'm going to go to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, wash my feet. I'm here because I need to claim 1 John 1, 9. I'm I'm going to do that as a believer regularly, yes. But all along the way, the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us. And old J. Vernon McGee used to say, it just keeps on cleaning, right? He's given you the sense there behind that if you listen to him. Uh, It just keeps on cleaning. Every time you come to Him, it's never exhausted. The blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. That way we can stay in the light and keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So when we live out the Beatitudes and others begin to not really um, take kindly to that, we make enemies on both sides because those that you know, think that we ought to be on their side find out that we're on God's side instead. It doesn't really work well. And, and then those that you know, we know we would never be on their side, they already know we're on God's side. And so it wasn't already working out well there to begin with. Now we're in a place to where maybe we would find ourselves in a, in a situation like Paul said at one point in his life. I looked on my right hand. The psalmist said, I looked on my right hand and, and there was no man there for me. No man cared for my soul. Paul put it like this. He said, no man stood with me. But then he went on to say, but Christ stood with me. And this is hard. This is difficult as a Christian because... I mean, peer pressure is a, is a mean thing, isn't it? It can be. Now, it can be a good thing, too, but uh, you've heard the silly illustrations, right, where you put 30 people in a room and 29 of them know what's going on and the one doesn't, and the 29 of them get in there and there's a color card. Maybe you've heard this before. There's a color card that's clearly red and everybody, all the other 29 are told to say that's blue, that's blue, that, you know, something totally opposite from what red is. And so the one in there that's the guinea pig in all of this sits down at the table and they start deliberately on his side, whatever side they pick, and they're going to go through the whole room, through all 29 of those people, right, until they get to him. And he's the last one that has to pick that color and it's really easy all he has to do is say red 
the card's red, but it starts on the right hand. And the first person looks at it and just with, without hesitation says, blue. Whoa, whoa, this guy's crazy. He must be colorblind, right? That's what we, we rationalize it the first time around. The second person comes and he says, blue. Oh, now, wait a minute here. What's going on? Third person, blue. And, and by the time you get to five, six, seven, you're thinking, all oh, my teachers, every one of them lied to me. How could they do this to me? My own mother. Oh. And you're sweating bullets by the time you come around to that 29th person. Everybody, blue, 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 blue. The card is clearly red, blue, blue. And the world is telling us, blue, 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 blue. We can do whatever we want. But God's Word says, no. God's Word says there is a right way and there is a narrow way. And it's easy for us to get caught up in all of this to where all the pressure comes on us and we say, you know, and the test has been done from what I've read and studied and the people who pass it, they don't. They don't make it through the peer pressure because they begin to question their own faculties. Maybe I'm colorblind. And, and all of these things. And so it comes to the 30th person and sweating profusely, gripping that card, hesitating. <laughs> Fail. What? Yeah, that's just cruelty, by the way. Uh, those things ought, ought not to be done to people. Jesus is going to help us understand here some things. And we covered last time in, in detail His words about how He approaches particularly the Holy Scriptures. Now, you're no stranger to where I stand on the Bible. I've, I've been vocal about that plenty. But we did a little bit of an exercise, and it was a lot of fun last time. I love doing this every time I get the chance, to look at what Jesus said with the jots and the tittles. And the, the jot would be the Hebrew character Yoth. That's about the size of an apostrophe. It's a Hebrew letter. And then the tittle would be that part of a letter that hangs over. And, and uh, if you weren't here last week, ask somebody. They'll, they'll do a comparison for you, uh, and, and they'll show you real quick the Hebrew characters on what a tittle is. It would be like the, the, the Q on a, on a, ta- a, a, a tail on a Q. That would be like a tittle in our English language. I think that's the best letter that I could pick for you. Some have said R, but I think it's too easy to, you know, that's a big line. A Q, it has a little bitty line that hangs over. That one's closer to what I think would be a tittle. Uh, maybe the size of a bug's antenna. Remember that from last time. That's common, common words uh, outside of the Bible. That word tittle is translated as, as a bug's antenna sometimes. Uh, interesting. So Jesus has the utmost respect for the Scriptures. And he, re- he reassures His disciples. There's a way that they could possibly think about the Scriptures that would be in error. And He says, do not think that way. Think not that I've come to do away with anything that Moses said, anything that Abraham uh, went through, anything that God records from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus says, that is forever settled in heaven. He says, I've not come to destroy, I've not come to, maybe a synonym would be to annul, but I'm still wrestling through that word in my mind uh, on, on to annul. I've not come to annul any of that. I've not come to destroy what was done by God through Israel in the Old Testament. No, he says, I've come to fulfill. And so Jesus is challenging his disciples to have some right thinking about the Bible. Christ's purpose in coming was to fulfill. Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. That encapsulates the whole of the Old Testament in the way they would understand it. And so he challenged their false misconceptions about his own ministry. 
And he also reassured them that the consummation of the old covenant promises would be in him, would be in Christ. He's not come to destroy, but to fulfill all that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he also reassured them that all the covenant promises that God made to Israel, specifically, now, I'm specifically uh, looking toward the new covenant promises that they would have been hoping for that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Hosea and others prophesied about. That new covenant promise in particular stands in full view here when he says those are all still valid. None of that goes away. God is still going to use Israel. He's not finished with His people. There's going to come a day when they pass under the rod and all of those physical blessings that were promised to Abraham, that were promised to David, that were promised to the Levitical priesthood, all of those will come to pass and they will find their fulfillment in the righteous branch, Jesus Christ, who will rule and reign for a thousand years from the throne of David right here on this earth in Jerusalem, literally. And David will be resurrected, ruling at His right hand, These promises are what the people of Israel are clinging to when Jesus gives this message. He says, none of that is bypassed by what I'm going to do in my ministry. None of that is going to be thwarted. None of that will be destroyed in any way. They're all still valid. And he reassures them that they're still valid to the end of the world. He says, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass. When will that happen? That will happen in the end of Revelation. We read about it. In those prophecies in in, uh, Revelation chapter 20 through 22. We spent a great deal of time studying that. And in Matthew 24, 35, he reassures us that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He reassures it down to the smallest iota. Every jot, every tittle will be fulfilled. And we did a comparison of that. We came to the conclusion that Jesus stood behind both the verbal and the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures and also verified their preservation by God's design. We have the Holy Scriptures and they're forever settled. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be, perf- uh, might be uh, perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. He bases this on the eternality of God's Word. Look at the last part of verse number 18. He says, This will happen till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass. One jot, one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. In other words, the way you could translate that another way would be to say, and it's not as beautiful as the translators have rendered it, so that's why we don't do it that way, but it literally would mean till everything happens. Think about that. Till everything that God promised would happen does, we can rest that this Bible is not going anywhere. Now, Let's think about that in light of the day in which we live. I just confirmed this the other day. I saw a commercial come on and it was uh, something, you know, it was the, uh, the new and improved, right? Uh, it's the same thing that they had before, but if, I, if they don't slap the word new on it, I'm probably not going to buy it. Because we get the mentality of the mindset that old things are antiquated, therefore they're no good. Fooey. Hogwash. 
Well, here's a silly illustration, but I just, you know, my new truck that I've got, it's new to me truck. Hey, I got rid of the power locks on that. You know why? Because I went back to the old way of doing it. Amen. It works. Hallelujah. I don't have to worry about motors breaking and stuff. It's great. And I get to be a gentleman and open the door for people on the other side. Okay, I digress. Not really, because you, you get what I'm saying here about the, the way that we think. Commercials. Don't watch them, okay? But just if you happen to see one, notice how much it's focused on the novel and the novelty of things. Everything has to be new. Well, what was wrong with the old one? It's old. That's all that's wrong with it. It's old. It's not, it's not the new one. Okay, Jesus Christ here says, this Bible shall never be antiquated in God's eyes. Now, the world might say, that's an old book. You know, this is outdated. And even the church today has given into that lie. We all need new translations and this translation and that translation. And, well, we've dug this up and we found this over here. And we compare. Hey, I'm all for scholarship. I'm all for archaeology. I'm all for doing that. But don't tamper with God's Word. Let the text stand and let the Bible verify what you're digging out of the ground. Amen? Well, okay, I get passionate about that. It's based on the eternality of God's Word till everything that God promised would happen does. That's how long we can expect the Bible to be around. That's forever. Amen? Now, let's look at the Christian's reward. We've looked at Christ's purpose. His purpose was to fulfill. We've looked at the covenant promises. They will all stand sure until that day when Messiah comes and everything is fulfilled. Now let's look at the Christian's reward. Because this is Jesus talking to His disciples, those who would follow Him and give their life to Him. And He has some words for them. He's going to instruct them that there are two paths as a disciple that you can follow. You can first off become a model lawbreaker. Or... If you choose the second path, which is the one I would encourage you to choose, you can become the master's disciple maker. Think that through. I'll say it again, because that's good enough to remember, I think. You can either choose the path of becoming a model lawbreaker. And when you stand as a disciple before the Lord Jesus Christ in His judgment seat, and then throughout all eternity after that, Jesus assures you that if you choose that path, you will be called least in His kingdom. Because you were the model of what not to do with His Word. These are some serious things. So what does this model lawbreaker who would be called least in the kingdom look like? Look at verse number 19. Whosoever therefore, whosoever is whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoso is conditioned by the context, he's teaching his disciples. So by that, we, uh, we suppose, if you will, if you'll give me that grace, that these are saved people because they came to Jesus willingly. They understand what it means to be poor in spirit. They understand his his, uh, his work that He has come to do as Messiah. Now, it's not yet fulfilled on Calvary uh, because Calvary is still in the future at this moment. But He is the Messiah. And His disciples have believed on Him. And He has called them and said, Follow Me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And they left all and followed Him. They did. 
And so as they step down and follow Jesus, he tells them, Whosoever of you that are following me shall break one of these least commandments and, watch this, shall teach men so. Any time in the Scriptures where you see God's people being oppressed, God's people being persecuted, God's people being taught falsely with ill motive, any time you see that in the Scriptures, pay attention because you're also going to see something else happen. God is going to take up the cause of His people. His people do not go on crusades, uh, although you know the history of Christendom is flooded with the ills and the woes of, of men getting this out of balance. No, we're taught to be meek and to let God take up these things. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That verse doesn't read as someone read there that vengeance is fine. Okay, No, that's not what that says. Don't read it like that. He says, vengeance is mine. So we give place to the Lord and we say, like Michael did, the Lord rebuked thee. And so this is a message that every community leader needs to understand. And I don't say this because, because it's me here. I say this because it's documented. It's verifiable. Look it out in the Scriptures and see if this is not the case. Look at the history pages of of nation after nation, of community after community, and tell me if this is not the case. Where God's people are oppressed, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, where God's people are oppressed, what happens to that culture? What happens to that society? Do they continue on in prosperity? No, they, they wax worse and worse. They suffer under God's chastening and His judgment. You want a case in point? Well, just get out the history books. Rome, they persecuted the Christians. What happened to them? Rome imploded in in itself. Look at the Babylonians. They persecuted God's people. And God arose other nations to judge Nebuchadnezzar and his descendants and to eradicate Babylon's empire off the map. What about Assyria? I mentioned uh, this past week in another meeting I had uh, about the book of Nahum and that Nineveh would suffer the judgment of God for what they had done to God's people eradicated off of the map. The fastest way down the toilet is to go after God's people and, and oppress them and persecute them. Colorado, are you listening? Leave the baker alone. I'll move on. Jesus says, Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The Jews uh, used the expression, the law, in about four different ways in this day and time. They used it to mean the Ten Commandments. They used it to mean the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the part of the Bible uh, that Moses wrote that we believe. The five rolls is what they'd call it, or the five scrolls. Uh, This was to the Jews par excellence. Uh, It was by far the most important part of the Bible to them. Thirdly, they would use this phrase to talk about the law and the prophets. So we're looking at the commandments here. Jesus talking about the law being fulfilled. How are they understanding this? The law and the prophets, meaning the whole of Scripture, comprehensive description of what we know as the whole Old Testament. And then fourthly, and this was interesting to see, they used it to also mean the oral or the scribal law. 
And we do good to understand the office of the scribe. Ezra was the first scribe that we really read about in the Bible. He started a good thing, by the way. Ezra was a great man of God. He was used mightily. But by the time you come from Ezra's day to Jesus' day, it had suffered great corruption under the hands of the scribes. So uh, maybe this uh, this is repeating what we talked about before. But hear me out on this, if you will. A scribe's job in Jesus' day would be to take the scriptures, to take the five books of Moses, and then to expound on that. And they took the position that, well, while the scriptures may not you know, explicitly say you know, what we ought to do in every waking moment of our life, we can implicitly derive it, and therefore what the scribes wrote were as good as what Moses wrote in that regard. There's some dangers with that. Now, the scribes were the one, ones who came up with this whole system. They wrote it all out, down to the minutest detail. You know, we would, we would call this, uh, you know, how many times should you rub the toothbrush back and forth when you brush your teeth? I, I, that's the minutia of detail they would be involved in that they extrapolate from the Old Testament Scriptures that is nowhere there. And they read into it these things. And now that becomes the authority. And it's not written down per se. It's passed down by oral tradition. Now the scribes put all that together. The Pharisees are the ones who are going to uphold it and live by it. That's important because of what Jesus says here. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees were the ones that walked the line that the scribes had drawn. God is not really in that. It wasn't inspired by Him. So Jesus is speaking to them. And in this time, you know, the common understanding, it could be argued that it would be that oral law that was handed down from the scribes. The Old Testament, they would have that. But let me give you some silly illustrations here. To write. You know, we're talking about Sabbath laws. Okay, Sabbath laws that the scribes came up. To write was to work on the Sabbath. God forbid you write anything at all on the Sabbath. Okay, I'm being exaggerative here. To heal. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath, according to the scribes now. The scribes, they were the men who worked out all of these rules and regulations. And so you have these Pharisees that are living by all these laws. So think think about that. When Jesus goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and He heals this this person that you know has this issue, and they stand upright on the Sabbath. They're not looking at the heat. They're not looking at you know rejoicing that this person got better. They're looking at this man. How dare he violate what was written by the scribes and what was passed down to us by the scribes? No person of God would do that. But yet there were those in their midst that recognized who Jesus was. There was a man that came to Jesus by night of the Pharisees because he didn't want anybody else to know he was there. Probably he snuck away. And came and talked to Jesus and he says, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. So there's this big discrepancy going on in their day. And they can't get past this. So Jesus tells his disciples, Don't take that path. Don't take that path. I wish it weren't the case. But down through the course of time, since Jesus Christ began His ministry and built His church, and then other churches have been built and and reproduced and passed down through the ages, some have erred from the faith. And you and I alike can think together of institutions, and I call them institutions on purpose, or systems that have developed 
out of something that might have begun well and, and in a good intent, and now they are beyond repair in my opinion in some cases because they have made the same grave mistake. And God forbid... Here's my heart for Broomfield Baptist. Okay, we could spend all day talking about everybody else and what's wrong with everybody else. We have enough of our own problems. Are you with me? <laughs> my heart for Broomfield Baptist is that we would stay the, the course and stay the true and the narrow as long as God keeps us here. Because there comes a time in the life of a church that the machine tends to get bigger than the man. And systems take over and things become mechanical. That's a dangerous place to be. I love, I love how God takes just a, a small nucleus of people and bands them together for the work of the ministry because that's what He uses to turn this world upside down, impacting people for Christ. Let's not get caught up in the systems that we miss the Savior because though we might be saved, God forbid we come before the judgment seat of Christ one day and He go through all the records and say, all right now, as a church, you, uh, you started out pretty well. I'm thinking of a church in particular that Jesus did say this about that we have record of. You know, you had these good qualities about you. You were sound in your doctrine. On the truth, you stood and, and no one could sway you. you. You abhorred the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Yeah, I'm with you on that, the Lord would say. He says, but I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. God help us. It's easier than we think to happen because autopilot occurs. And as a church, we just go through the motions and we wind up drifting. And Jesus says, if you're not careful, you will stand before me one day and you will give an account for that. And when you go into eternity, you're going to have this mark on you. You're going to be known. Everyone in eternity is going to call you least. When you might have been called so great temporally here before that throne, you will be called least there. Now let's move on to this other thought and I'll, I'll uh, leave you with this today. We can become a model lawbreaker, that's how I've summarized that, by taking God's word, you know, think of some illustrations on how that might occur by the way, how we take the scriptures and read into them and begin teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men, Twisting and resting the scriptures to our own destruct, destruction. Giving ear to these fables and endless genealogies. I mean, there's illustration after scripture. Scripture after scripture. Paul telling Timothy and other places. But let's think about becoming the master's disciple maker. And these are precious words. We don't want to focus so much on the negative that we miss the positive promise that Jesus has here. If you will be faithful, if you will do what the Lord has called you to do, if you will keep these commandments, that means you're going to have to know your Bible. And I'm not talking about putting you under the yoke of the law of Moses. No, that waxeth old and is ready to vanish away. The law we operate under is the law of Christ, the royal law of liberty. And we look in this book and it shows us what we need to change. We become more like Jesus day by day as we walk through the process of sanctification we spend time in the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit illuminating that for us. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We love others as Christ loved us and we fulfill the law of Christ. All the commandments of Christ that are in this blessed testament, this new testament, this new covenant. He says, if we will keep these, 
He says, whosoever shall do and teach. Put those together. Okay, it's not just enough for you to individually have this down. Please tell me you understand that, because I think this is a great detriment to the church today. We have people who know how to do, but they don't know how to teach it to others. And they haven't come to that place yet. Their light is under a bushel if it's just them doing it. No, he says you have to do and teach. Do and teach. Teach what? The commandments. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus said uh, to go into all the nations and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you under the end of the I'm with you always, even under the end of the earth, the end of the age. Do and teach them. He assures us this same disciple will is the one who will be great in the kingdom of heaven. You'll have that title. The emphasis is on teaching as well as keeping. You do them. You teach them. This is the responsibility of disciples to go forward and teach others. And this Sermon on the Mount, it's not just preparing disciples. No, if you, if you only read it that far, you've missed it. It is preparing teachers of disciples. In other words, we are teaching disciple makers. This is how the Lord multiplies His people. One teaches one, and then you have two, and two teach two, and they become four, and four becomes eight, and eight becomes... How did they reach the ends of the earth? How had all of the known world of their day, I'm talking about the early church, received the Word of God? Because somebody got it. They went out and they did what Jesus said to do. They went everywhere preaching the Word. And when they went as far as they could go in the Scriptures, they wrote back to the apostles and said, we're at our wits end. We don't know what to do. We need help. Send Barnabas. Barnabas goes and says, hey, look what God's doing here. I need help. I'm going to go get Paul. He goes and gets Paul. They're there for a year and a half. 18 months. And then the Holy Spirit says, separate Paul and Barnabas unto me for the work of the ministry wherewith I've called them. The, the church at Antioch lays hands on Paul and Barnabas. They ship off for their missionary journeys. Three missionary journeys later, we have all the journeys of Paul recorded and church after church planted in area after area. Churches reproducing churches because disciples are teaching disciple makers. And God's people are going out, turning the world upside down. And the world just can't understand what's going on. And did they suffer persecution? You better believe they did. Paul gives an account of all that he went through, and it validates every word that Jesus said about suffering for righteousness' sake. Paul did. But by the time he came to the end of it all, he says, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord shall give me in that day, and not to me only, but unto all them, every single disciple maker, every single teacher of disciple makers. Jesus has a promise. He says, you'll have the title. When you go through the streets of glory, they're going to say, that was a great disciple. They turned the world upside down for Christ. That one individual. Now I'm like you. I'm going, I don't know. I don't feel worthy for that. I don't want that acclaim. It's not about me. But you know what? 
It isn't about me. Because by that person being called great, who does it really represent? It doesn't point to them in the end. It points to what Jesus did. You know, there's a song we sing, Look for Me. And it talks about telling your story when you get to glory. And I don't know how it will all fall out. But when you get there, you're going to have to go through and tell everybody about how you made it through and all of that. And then come and find me and tell me too is how the song goes. Because I want to hear that. Hey, when somebody sees that mark and they say, that was, a, that was a great servant of the Lord. Hey, tell me about what you did. T- tell me about how the Lord used you. You see, it's all glory to Christ. And we're going to be talking about Him through the end of the ages. All that He did. And, and we don't even know the half of it, do we? What a blessed promise. Now, He closes this paragraph by teaching us how to have right thinking about righteousness. That's a little redundant, but I want you to get it. We've already nailed down our right thinking about the Bible. Jesus Christ validated the authority of the Old Testament. He validated the authority of the Bible. We're solid on the Scriptures. We know that if we keep the Bible and we go out and teach others to do the Bible, then that's where the reward comes for following Christ. We don't want to go down the other path. So then, Jesus ends with this warning. The right right thinking about righteousness. Verse number 20, he says, For I say unto you, for is explanatory. He's giving some explanation on how we might still miss this whole idea of going down the wrong path and getting locked into legalism and different things that happen to God's people along the way. He says, here's the condition. If, when you see the word if or except, and it's the word except here. He says, except your righteousness. This is a conditional statement. So, The condition is... Okay, what's the condition? You'll like this. you want to write this down and think it through. Jesus says, except you excel the excellent. Excelling the excellent. Why do I say that? Because he goes on to say, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So, whoa, hit the brakes here. Hold on. So Jesus, when we look at the scribes and Pharisees... They're really, you know, high on a pedestal in this day. You don't get any better than the scribes and Pharisees. If you don't believe that, go read Philippians 3 where Paul gave his own description of being a Pharisee, above the law, blameless. Hey, if I was a dad in that day and I had a son or, or a daughter, I'd say, hey, I want you to grow up and be like these Pharisees because they do things right. They've got this thing down. They've got this system and uh, they're known for it and they're, they're you know, they're, they're righteous people. You don't get any better than that. Think about the best person you know of. I'm talking in you know, human goodness here. They, are, they just keep the law. You know, they're, always, they're just right on. I have, a, I have an Adventist friend that was on the board at RHOA with me. And I'll tell you, that was a righteous man. In his own righteousness, that is. You understand where I'm going. I'm not being unkind. He was a great guy. I mean, he helped me anytime I needed it. Uh, I knew that, you know, morally, the man was never going to compromise on anything. He was a great companion to me on a board where we're trying to, you know, help make decisions for a community. But I just, I don't know. Deep down inside, I want to believe that he knew Jesus. But again, that Adventism creeps in and there's that old system of keeping the law, keeping the law, keeping the law. And that's how they, they, they try to get to heaven. So what he's saying here is that except you excel what you already think is the most excellent now. Except you go beyond that. This is, 
I can't do that. Can you do that? Sorry, I've already blown it a long time ago. When I started breathing, you can ask my mother, I blew it. So what's Jesus saying here? It's got to be more than our own strength. It's got to be more than our own righteousness. The only way that you will ever excel the excellent, that men deem excellent, is to come through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. Faith is the victory that overcometh the world. I stand redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He sees me as worthy, not as I am. Through Jesus and what He's done. And so, excelling the excellent. Kingdom righteousness, one writer said, operates from the inside out. I thought that's a great summary. Not the outside in. That summarizes it all, doesn't it? In, it's a principle fully in line with the Old Testament understandings of righteousness and purification. Jesus' disciples are called to a different kind and a different quality of righteousness than that of its current religious leaders. Jesus is aiming for an internal, inside transformation. And when he goes into the law and says, you've heard that it hath been said, perhaps hinting to the oral traditions handed down, you've heard them saying this, I say unto you, It's not about the outside, it's about the in. That's what God sees. What's going on in here? Hatred, lust, adultery. God sees it all. He wants your heart. This fits with the new covenant promises too, by the way, of the indwelling Holy Spirit, all of that. He says there's a danger, and this is one that we need to wrestle through. The danger, he says is ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we were talking about people that were disciples, they're following the Lord, and maybe they chose the path to go down, you know, this legalistic path, and they're, you know, or that might not be the best illustration because we're calling them model lawbreakers, right? You're not keeping Jesus' commands is how we, we, we understand that. And so they go down that path. In this verse, he's saying, you're not getting in, period. We're not talking about somebody who's going to be called least, but they're in. We're talking about somebody who is not going to be in whatsoever. And this is where we would talk about people that get caught up in works-based systems of salvation. And you could put whatever name you want on it. Sacraments. Uh, we, you know, we do these things to merit God's grace. Martin Luther asked the Roman church for one word, one word alone. He said, if, if, if Rome would give me just one word... You know what that one word was? Alone. Faith, alone. The Bible, alone. But Rome wouldn't buckle on that. And so we had the Reformation because of his, his stand against them in that. And I don't agree with Martin Luther on everything, by the way, but uh, he, was, he was the uh, proponent with his 95 Theses, the church door at Wittenberg. The danger is that we could miss heaven altogether. Now, fast forward to the end of the sermon and you'll find Jesus saying some striking words about people who had prophesied in His name and cast out demons in His name and done many wonderful works in His name. In His name, in His name, in His name. And then Jesus turns around and says to them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. They didn't get the inside transformation. And Jesus says, if there's anyone here by that case... By the way, out of the twelve, was there anybody who fit that bill? I thought so. So, could there be among our churches people that are doing it for the wrong reasons? Doing it 
from the outside in? Yeah. And we might be helping them too. Jesus said, don't be called least when you get there. Be observant. He says, let your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, or else you might stand before me one day and hear those words, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We're talking a lot today about God's righteousness. And I close with this. You've been kind to me to listen this far. We're done for this morning with this thought. God's righteousness is what salvation is really all about. But the question becomes, is that what you believe? In your heart of hearts? Or are you still among those who are, you're spending a lifetime accumulating things that you, you think are going to earn heaven for you? If you're doing that, then you need to learn that those things, those very things that you're clinging to, will be the very things that cause you to bust hell wide open. Hell is full of human righteousness, one writer said. Uh, I had a teacher in high school that said it this way. He says, hell is full of good intentions. Good intentions. It's all it takes to go to hell. No, we need to recognize the imperfection of righteousness uh, in, in human standing and accept the righteousness of God. And true believers have always known that. It comes by God. And as a result... You know, they've, they've written recognition of that into a number of hymns. We love to sing these hymns. One of those great hymns goes like this. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, that is a bird. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You know the song. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. If you will pray that prayer, friend, God will wash you. God will cleanse you. He will give you the righteousness that is above anything that a man can ever attain. And He will receive you on the basis of that righteousness into His heaven. Accept your righteousness succeed. How? You've got to come empty and let God fill you with His righteousness.